Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. I need to start this morning with a little confession. I love electric scooters. That's the, that's the whole confession. I love electric scooters. Scooters. I ride them any time that I can, even when it's completely unnecessary. Like sometimes when I have a meeting, I'll go like drive to where the meeting is and then I'll park like five or six blocks away by a scooter so I can scoot to the meeting, you know, and get on my scooter and get there. And not my scooter, I, you know, I use the ones that the people have. But anyway, so then I go back and I scoot back to my car and then that's it. I use them all the time. I don't know all the psychology behind why I love them, but I'm pretty sure it has something to do with being kind of a bigger guy who isn't all that used to going fast, you know, and being agile. Because on a scooter, it doesn't matter how big you are, you know? You can go as fast, you can do as many cuts as you want. Unless you're going uphill, of course. I don't know if you've ever been a big person on a scooter going uphill. The scooter slows way down, it starts making noises like it's dying and I start feeling really bad about myself. But my very favorite thing to do on a scooter is to explore new cities. Like anytime I travel, I try to find a scooter and like make my way around downtown. Because it's great, because you don't have to worry about parking or U-turns or traffic laws really of any kind, I think. <laughs> I think that's right. Um, you can just scoot wherever you want. Hop off, explore on foot, jump back on the scooter, scoot to the next place. It's just so fun. But a few times, my love of scooter exploration has gotten me in trouble. One of those times was in Atlanta. I flew in on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon in October of 2019 for a conference. And then after we landed, I took the train to the Buckhead District, which is just a little bit north of downtown there in Atlanta. And this is where all the pastors were going to gather at a church later there that evening. After I dropped my stuff off in a room, I realized that I had a few hours before I needed to be anywhere, which can only mean one thing time to find a scooter and go exploring. So I find one out in front of my hotel and I'm off. And I go by a big mall on one side, it's really cool. I, I see the church where I'm supposed to meet on the other side that night. I discover a chicken and waffles place that looks amazing and I make a mental note. I'm gonna come back there later when I have some time. And I continue making my way through the Buckhead District and eventually end up stopped at an intersection. Now I'm still kind of looking around, taking in all the sights not really paying attention to the cross streets, when the light turns green, I decide to go ahead and keep, turn right and keep on exploring. And as I look up, I make the turn, and here is what I see. That's what I see. Beautiful, right? <laughs> Big trees, blue skies, but look past all of that for a second. 
Does anyone see a potential problem for someone on a scooter? That's a highway. The eight-lane Georgia State Highway 400, to be more precise. Now, I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but the little white sign on the right says, keep moving, in all caps. And y'all, that is exactly what I did. I had no choice. I gripped those handlebars as tight as I could. I said a quick prayer, and I just hoped that there would be a shoulder or something that I could pull off onto really quickly. But alas, I turn that corner and I see this. Now, here's the thing you have to know about highways in Atlanta. Most of them have no shoulders. They're just like a bunch of very narrow lanes shoved together, often with large walls on one or both sides. They also have no real exit lanes, just abrupt right turns where streets parallel and intersect. Honestly, it's a little scary to drive on when you're not used to it, but scooting down an Atlanta highway is a whole other thing. Absolutely terrifying. So there I was, scooting down Highway 400, cars all around me. Some were honking out of annoyance because I can only go so fast. Some people were laughing at me, like literally as they drove by, see them in their cars like, ha, you know, that's unbelievable. Others genuinely looked concerned for my safety. I appreciated those folks. But there was nothing they could do. There was nothing that I could do. Like I said, that sign, it just says keep moving, and that's really all you can do. I went back and mapped it this week because I knew I was going to tell this story. I was on that highway for over half a mile before I could finally turn back onto a regular street. I still remember the name of that street, Peachtree Road. It was beautiful. I turned onto it, and then I, I veered onto the sidewalk so I could stop and catch my breath. And I looked up, and guess what I saw? That chicken and waffles place. It was like stumbling upon an oasis after walking through a hot desert for many miles. Now, one of the funniest parts about that story is I did not tell anyone about it, including my wife, until like two years later. It was random. We were with my sister-in-law who'd just gotten back from Atlanta, and she's complaining about how the highways there have no shoulders and no exit lanes. And without even thinking about it, I say, you think that's crazy? Try doing it in a scooter. Now, I bet some of you are thinking, why on earth are you telling us this story? And that's a fair question. Because as hilarious as what happened to me in Atlanta was, it's kind of emblematic of what happens to a lot of us in life. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we are just kind of scooting along, not really paying attention, and we find ourselves on a highway with no shoulders and no exit ramps and seemingly no way off. But instead of the Georgia State Highway 400, This highway is the American rat race. We are just pursuing it, and we don't know how to stop. Most of us didn't start our lives wanting to perpetuate the endless cycle of acquisition and consumption, right? We didn't dream about that when we were kids, earning the most money we can and then spending as much or more than we make. We didn't grow up wanting to be a part of the rat race, but our culture has a current that many of us get caught up in. It has a highway that almost every road naturally merges into. And once you are on that highway with no shoulders and no exit ramps and walls all around you, it can feel impossible to get off of it. Remember the quote from Mark Scandrett I mentioned last week. In his book, Free, Spending Your Time and Money on What Matters Most, he says this, we live in one of the wealthiest economies on earth, 
And yet many of us feel crunched for time, stressed in our finances, or perplexed about what makes life meaningful. Our culture is driven by a sense of scarcity, fear, and the unquenchable quest for more. If we don't make conscious choices to resist these impulses, the force of a materialistic and consumeristic society will make most of our decisions for us. He's saying if we do not choose to intentionally divest ourselves from this wrath race, to take the exit off of this endless highway of materialism and consumerism, then we will never be free to experience the fullness of life that Jesus desires for us. And that's why after six years of putting this off, last week we launched a series on wealth and possession called Free from the Love of Money. Principles and practices to help set you free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. And this series is designed to help us develop a generous spirit, both as individuals and as a church family. And so last week we kicked it off with principle number one, and that's this. It's not just money. It's not just money. Money is powerful, and the ruthless pursuit of money and the power it can buy is the driving force behind so much of the brokenness in our world today. And that's why Scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus warns us about money constantly. He even personifies it. Last week we talked about this. He personifies it as a spiritual power when he calls it mammon. And he says, pursuing it is the antithesis of pursuing God. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. See, it's not just money. Because we are constantly being tempted to place our trust in it rather than in God. To use it to build our kingdom rather than using our time and resources to build God's kingdom. But notice the verse I just read. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Right? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, money itself is not evil. Having money, a little bit or a lot of it, isn't inherently bad or sinful. It's about our posture toward money and what we do with the wealth and possessions we have that matters most. Are we hoarding it and using it for selfish gain? Or are we recognizing that it all belongs to God and we have a responsibility to use it, to honor him and to support our neighbors? That is the question, the fundamental question about money that we all have to answer. Which leads us to principle number two that we're going to cover today. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. Last week, uh, we looked at a bunch of different scripture passages. We'll do that again this week, but we'll also kind of camp out in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you want to turn there on your Bible phone, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, you may or may not know, but 1 Timothy is actually a letter written by a guy who started out as a persecutor of Christians and then had this radical encounter with Jesus and became a pastor and church planter. His name was Paul. And Paul wrote this letter to one of his pastoral protégés, a young guy named Timothy. And the letter starts out like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's this letter. And Paul spends his time in this letter instructing Timothy about a number of different things. How to recognize false teaching, what godly leaders should look like, and, and much more. And then when he gets to chapter 6... Paul begins warning Timothy about the love of money. 
and how insidious it can be. He actually tells Timothy that there are many people out there who are pretending to be godly just for the sake of financial gain. And then he says this, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. So Paul says that the proper response to God giving us what we need is contentment. We'll talk more about being content and grateful as keys to experiencing freedom in just a minute. But for now, I want to focus in on that highlighted section. This idea that we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave. This is actually a theme. It's not the only time this appears in the Bible. This theme is present throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus even tells a parable to illustrate this truth. It's called the rich fool. It's about a man who spends his whole life chasing more and more, even tearing down his barns to build bigger ones so he can put more and more stuff in it. But Jesus makes it clear that his pursuits are frivolous because he can't take anything with him. Luke 12, 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be required of you. Then who will own what you have accumulated? Another time we see this theme is from Job after he experiences a catastrophic loss. He says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. But I think the most candid example comes from the author of Ecclesiastes. They say, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. We can't take our riches with us. We came into this world with nothing, and we can't take anything with us when we leave. I love that. God asked the rich fool, when you die, who will own all of the money and possessions that you have spent your whole life accumulating? Who gets it? The answer is no one. No one gets it. Because again, we don't own anything. Let me tell you this. Ownership is a myth. I don't care if you have the title to your car, you don't actually own it. I don't care if you have the deed to your house, you don't actually own it. Do you know why? Because when you die, it stays here. You go and it stays. And can I tell you a little secret? This is kind of meta, this is kind of outside of what we're talking about in scripture today. But you really don't own it before you die either. Because what happens if you don't pay your mortgage? That house that you own goes back to the bank. And if you're thinking, well, hey, that doesn't apply to me, Zach. All right, we own our own uh, our home outright. We don't make any payments on it. Okay, what happens if you don't pay your taxes? What happens if your house is associated with illegal activity? Or what happens if it's just in the way of a highway that needs to be built? That house you own outright is taken from you. Every single one of us no matter if we have a little or we have a lot, are simply managers of our stuff and our money while we are alive on this earth. We don't own anything. None of us do. Not individuals, not governments. Nobody actually owns anything because it all belongs to God. Scripture is abundantly clear on this point. 
Listen to a few. All the earth is mine, Exodus 19.5. Everything under heaven belongs to me, Job 41.11. The highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 10.14. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, 1 Corinthians 10.26. But I think my favorite scripture about this truth is from the Psalms. The psalmist is speaking for God, and so God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I love the sassiness from God here. He says, I'm not going to tell you if I get hungry. Why would I? You can't feed me. Everything belongs to me already. I created it. I sustain it. I own it. God owns everything. We own nothing. But from the very beginning, God has asked us to be stewards of this earth and everything in it. Look with me at the very first chapter of the Bible. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Fill the earth and some translations say rule over it. God created humanity in his image and then tasked us with governing the rest of creation in a way that produces abundant goodness in all things and between all things. This is our calling as stewards. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, says it like this. When the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, but as a steward. We are not proprietors. We are not owners. We are stewards. We are managers. This is a vital concept to understand if we want to develop a generous spirit and be set free from the endless cycles of acquisition and consumption. We don't own anything. God owns everything. This has massive implications for how we live and interact with wealth and possessions. This means that when we are directed by God to be generous with our money and resources, we aren't giving to God, we are giving back to God. We are not giving to God, we are giving back to God. Think about it like a bank. If I take $500 and I go open a savings account at Frost, they don't own that money, right? Now, they might use it. They might steward it. They might use it to invest in something or make a loan of their own, but it's still mine. They are just temporary managers of it. So if I go ask for some of it back, they don't say, sorry, Mr. Lambert, you gave us that money and it's ours now. We get to decide what we do with it. No, they say, of course, Mr. Lambert, how much would you like? They don't give the money to me. They give the money back to me. We don't give to God. We give back to God. In his phenomenal book called Jesus and Money, Ben Witherington says this, The theory of property in the Bible is that God is the owner of all things. When it comes to the Bible's viewpoint, neither the government nor private individuals really own anything. Rather, we are all just stewards of God's property. And God can do what he likes with it. Now, here's the really important part. Ben says, the question is, are we in tune with God's preferences about such matters? 
That, my friends, is the question that we must answer ruthlessly and honestly in our lives. Are we in tune with God's preferences regarding what he has asked us to steward for him? Do we know what he wants? We can break it down like this. Number one, we don't own anything. Number two, everything we have belongs to God. Number three, do we know what he wants us to do with it? We don't own anything. Everything we have is on loan from God, and the question becomes, do we know what he wants us to do with it? So let's get really practical as we wrap up this morning. How do we take this principle and actually put it into practice in our lives? Or to put it another way, how do we make sure this truth doesn't just stay in our heads? How do we allow it to transform our hearts and change our actions too? Now I have an answer that might sound a little bit strange at first, but stay with me on it. If we want to make sure that this truth transforms our hearts and changes our actions, we must practice gratefulness. We must practice gratefulness. You were probably expecting me to say something like, be charitable or give generously. But here's the thing. If we don't start with gratefulness, any generosity we practice will be inauthentic. We will be giving out of compulsion instead of joy. And this kind of pseudo-generosity won't actually help us break free from the love of money. If we skip past gratefulness, giving will just become another box we check as we go down that highway of consumption. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to pray prayers of gratefulness. Pray prayers of gratefulness. Every time you buy something, gas, groceries, a new book, a meal out, even something off Amazon, I want you to stop and thank God for his provision in your life that he allowed you, that he steward, he gave you uh, enough to steward so that you could make that purchase, so that you could provide for yourself, for your loved ones. Pray a prayer of gratefulness because he's the one who supplied you with the resources. This practice will help you remember that God is the provider of all things, but it also has an added bonus of helping prevent you from buying stuff you don't need all the time. Because if you know you're about to have to pray a prayer of gratefulness right after this, it kind of makes you think twice about what you're buying, right? Because you remember that in your heart that this, this is God's. He has given this to me to steward. Am I really in touch with what he wants me to do with this? Or am I just purchasing frivolously? Am I just kind of aimlessly going down that highway and this kind of materialistic, consumeristic society is just making all the choices for me? Or am I actively choosing to pursue what God wants with the things that he has given to me to steward? Another great place to pray prayers of gratefulness is around the table. Whether you're eating dinner with your family or sharing a meal with a friend or just grabbing a quick bite to eat by yourself, stop and thank God for his provision. Most nights around our table, we take a minute to share what we're most thankful for that day. We're hoping that this instills this heart of gratefulness in our kids from a really young age. Because like we talked about at the beginning, choosing to practice gratefulness is this beautiful way to intentionally divest ourselves from this rat race. 
to take the exit off the highway of consumerism. It's one of these things that God has given us, this tool that he has handed to us to break free from the pursuit of more material things, more and more and more, so that we can experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. And practicing gratefulness, it really does change things. I love this quote from Ann Voskamp. She says, no amount of regret changes the past. No amount of anxiety changes the future. But any amount of gratitude changes the present. When we are grateful, things change. Our heart changes. When we are grateful, we remember this very important principle, this truth that we don't own anything, that everything we have is on loan from God, and that our job is to be grateful for it and to intentionally pursue what he wants us to do with what he's given us. When we do that, this generous spirit that we've been talking so much about, it will just organically begin to blossom within us. And the way you interact with wealth, money, and possessions will change for the so much better in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for what you've given to us. Thank you that you are the owner of all things, uh, that you have given us what we have to steward. And I pray that this truth would really sink in to our minds and into our hearts and flow out through our hands, uh, that you are the owner of all things. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. And that we are managers, we are stewards, God. And so our job, first and foremost, is just to be grateful Grateful that you have given us what we have. Grateful that you have allowed us to do the things that we do. And then secondly, out of that gratefulness flows this generosity, this understanding that we need to be a lot less concerned about what we want for the things you've given us to steward and a whole lot more concerned about what you want for them. Are we in touch with your preferences about these matters? I pray that we would be. I pray that through these practices of gratefulness that we jump into this week, that you would move our hearts to intentionally pursue what you have for us and what your desire is for the money, possessions, and wealth that you have given us to steward. I pray that we would use whatever we have, whether it's a little or a lot, to honor you and to love our neighbors well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.